continue our series to the book of James today. The book of James is a really practical book. I've really gained a lot from this study, and it's, it's a book I've studied before, but it's interesting how you study a book and you find just so much more out of it when you dive into it once again. Today, we're going to call our lesson Love Without Bias, Love Without Bias. But if you remember the theme through the book of James, we're calling it Growing Up for God. And it's about Christian maturity. It's about becoming someone we're not yet, which is more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Pastor Mel mentioned, I really ask that you pray tonight for Keystone because uh, the Keystone ministry is flourishing. And I can't take any credit for it. Not that I want to, but um, I've given less time this year to it than I have in the past just because of what's on my plate. And God is blessing it because of the students that are there. And the, like that, Pastor Mel said, the, the ripe harvest that it is and just pray that the gospel goes out powerfully tonight and that uh, the, the students there who would be blessed and uh, God would do something magnificent on that campus for the gospel. Love Without Bias is the title today. We're going to look at James 2, verses 1 to 13. James 2, 1 to 13. We'll get to the text here in a little bit. Did you ever want to avoid a certain type of people, if you're honest? Did you ever want to avoid a certain type of people? We've all have from time to time, unfortunately. I'm going to share a little bit of a story with you. Growing up, there was a group of people that I was constantly plagued with my entire time growing up in school. I couldn't get, around, I couldn't get away from these people. Every single class I went to, these people were always there next to me. They were the end of the alphabet people. <laughs> if you ever went to school, which all you did, you, you all remember how they would seat you according to alphabet, you know, seat you alphabetically. And so my last name begins with a W. And so I always sat next to the T to Z kids, right? Always. Every single class, most every single class would say, okay, we're going to seat you alphabetically. And I always knew where to take my place, the absolute last or second to last. But the end of the alphabet people weren't my favorite people. Um, They were too loud or chatty. They were too weird sometimes. They were too school spirited. They were too smelly, some of them. Too druggy, uh, too excited about life. You ever see that one? Too excited about life. It's like, listen, I don't need this kind of loudness while I'm trying to sleep through math class. You know, simmer down. They were the booger eaters, the scab pickers, the book nerds, the shop class kids, the teachers' pets, the detention kids. I don't know how you got both of those in the same group, but you did. You had the teachers' pets and the detention kids. The kids left back five years in a row. I wanted to hang out with the A to the G kids. Those were the good-looking, popular kids. But no, I had to hang out with the end of the alphabet kids all my life, me and Weinberg, for like nine years in a row. And uh, every time she said, I'm going to seat you alphabetically, me and Weinberg, we went to the last chairs and said, here we go. So uh, I didn't want to hang out with those kids, you know. And and what's interesting, though, is is, is life and school, they kind of tell you what you are. And I started to realize, man, I am an end of an alphabet kid. Those kids may have had the same thoughts about me as I had about them, going, I don't want to be around Walker. Every class, you know, he's the booger eater. He's the scab picker. He's the book nerd. Hopefully I wasn't. But all my life I wanted to avoid the end of the alphabet kids. I wanted to be right up there with the cool kids, and uh, unfortunately I didn't get to, but uh, life turned out okay. <laughs> Anyways, but we're going to look at something kind of like that today, a group of people that sometimes gets neglected, and we're going to look at this and call it Love Without Bias from James 2, 1 to 13. If you have your Bibles, join me there as we read these verses. James 2, 1 to 13. He says, My brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you then not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonored, excuse me, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, have you not become a transgressor of the law? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I was going to get kind of cute and creative with this passage today. I was going to get very creative and do something very unique today. And the more I sat with this passage and just thought about it, just meditated upon it, I realized that the direct approach is the best approach to this one today. Don't get too cute. Don't get too creative. We need to hear from the Spirit of God today, from James and what he's going to tell us today. I think it's really important. And we're titling the lesson, Love Without Bias. If you remember last time, we learned how we need to be careful to listen, when to speak, and the dangers of getting angry. We also learned that we mustn't stop short at only listening, but we should practice what we learn. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're following the Lord Jesus when we're not. He says, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. And now we turn the page to chapter 2, and this is another text that kind of seems like James is switching gears on us to something brand new, and to some degree he is. But what if? What if we took last week's lesson about hearing and doing? What if we took that lesson with us, the entire lesson today, brought it in our pocket, had it next to us? What if we remembered how we mustn't just learn, but we must do what we learn? Wouldn't it be nice if James gave us something to practice? Something to do after we learn that hearing alone is not enough. Wouldn't that be nice of James? Thankfully, he does. James does give us something to practice. Here is something today that we must practice and do if we want to be doers of the word and not hearers alone. And James says, if you only hear and you don't do, you actually deceive yourselves into thinking you're religious and godly when you're not. James begins by telling us to show no partiality or bias to others when we're holding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I want you to think about that phrase. Consider the responsibility and privilege it is to represent Jesus to this earth, to be Christ's ambassadors, because every Christian is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Guys, we are the king's men and women. You know that, right? We are the king's men and women. We are, we are the hired servants of the only king and the only lasting kingdom. We are. 
That's a big responsibility and privilege, is it not? To represent the king on a world that either rejects him or doesn't even believe he exists. That's better than serving the president. That's better than serving President Trump. That's better than any of his closest men and confidants is, is to serve the king of kings, the Lord of glory. Therefore, we need to be incredibly careful what we say and how we act because every word we speak, every action we perform can be taken from this world as if it's from the king of glory. Maybe you remember those old movies and shows where the king, back, back in the day when kings were there, they would have this signet ring. Do you remember that? And they would take the signet ring and put it right in the hot wax on the envelope. And that would let everyone know who's receiving the letter. This came from the king. This is important. It came from the king. It has his mark upon it. I used to work at Clark Summit University a couple of years ago. And uh, I, we used to have this Clark Summit University letterhead that we had, you know, in our buyer copier. And, and I was able to send out letters to schools with the Clark Summit University letterhead with a logo right on there. And basically when I sent out my letters to the schools, it was as if the entire school was being represented in my words. Isn't that interesting? Whatever I wrote on that letter and that note looked like it came from the entire university. So someone could look at it and go, oh, the school thinks this. Or the school thinks this is important. Because it had their mark upon it. We're Christians, are we not? We are Christ followers. What we say and what we do can be taken as if it's from the king of glory. Is that a big responsibility? That's an enormous responsibility, but it's also a privilege. I hope you find that to be a privilege. The word partiality, as he brings up, he says we should show no partiality. I want to define that word. I think that's important to know what that word means. Partiality, I looked it up, it said, unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another, or favoritism. Partiality, show no partiality is what he said. Well, to be honest... We all have favorites, right? We all have favorites of things and people. Isn't that right? We have favorites. Anyone have a favorite best friend? A best friend that is closer than other friends. Where's your best friend, by the way? Best friends, right? We all have best friends. I have a best friend. I have a best friend, someone who's closer to me, someone who likes the things that I like, likes to talk about the things that I like to talk about. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have someone who's a best friend. What about a favorite flavor of ice cream? Anyone want to shout theirs out? Favorite flavor of ice cream? Strawberry? Okay. What else? What is it? Pralines and cream. Okay. Chocolate? Cookie dough? Anyone like cookie dough? Ch cookie dough would be my, yes, thank you. Cookie dough would be my favorite if I didn't have a dairy issue. Peanut butter ice cream? Janine likes coffee ice cream. Coffee ice cream and anything with, with chocolate. Uh, favorite cereal? Any favorite cereals out there? Special K? Really? Man, growing up it was like Fruity Pebbles and Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Special K? That's like the ninth hundredth favorite. Yeah, go ahead. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. That's my son's favorite, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. He loves that cereal, wants to have it every morning. Uh, favorite dessert? Favorite dessert? What's your favorite dessert? Strawberry pie. Strawberry pie. That sounds really good. Who said cheesecake? That's my favorite. That's my favorite, cheesecake. You know what's interesting about all my favorites? Ice cream, cereal, and dessert, I can't have any of them because they all have dairy in them. <laughs> I know, you're supposed to go, aw, right now, yeah. But we have favorites. I'm just proving the point we have favorites of things. Isn't that true? Maybe if we were honest, there's a favorite sibling or parent or child. I'm not going to say who my favorite parent is right now, but uh, 
That may not go well. Either way. But uh, if we were honest, we have favorite people we like to hang out with. Since when is favoritism wrong? Since when is favoritism wrong? Well, as we're going to be taught today by James, favoritism or biasness is wrong when it deals with how we treat other people. How we treat others. I mean, it can't be wrong to prefer the company of certain people, can it? Probably not. No, probably not. We all enjoy the company of certain people more than others, just like we enjoy certain movie, music, and food tastes. Right? Just like I did not prefer the end of the alphabet, kids. We all prefer the company of certain people, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But when we show love and kindness to one group of people and rudeness and neglect to another sort of people, it's tragically wrong. And it's hurtful to people that God loves, that Jesus died on the cross for. In fact, as we'll learn, biasness is sin. Partiality, favoritism, in this regard, it's sin and God hates it. He hates it. I was going to act out this little scene today. I was going to get a couple of you to help me and act this scene out so we really understand what's going on and put it in a skit sort of form, but I don't think we need to. This, this scene, the scenario that James gives us is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to grasp, okay? Plus, I'm a pretty bad actor. Some of you might leave or throw tomatoes at me and that wouldn't go well, um, so I just want you to imagine the scene, okay? I want to retell this scene in sort of my own words, kind of modernize it a little bit. And I want you to picture the scene, okay? I want you to imagine the scene that is going on because it's very important to what we understand today, okay? Two people walk into the same assembly, like today, okay? Like a church gathering like this. Two people walk into the same assembly, a rich person and a poor person. The rich person comes in and they look like there's somebody important. Do you ever seen someone like that? You could just tell... That person's important. That person has important things to do with their life. They have gold jewelry on. Maybe in our day, perhaps in our day, they have a really nice car they drove up in, an Audi or a BMW or a Porsche, something like that. And they just look wealthy. They look important. As soon as they walk in, one of us immediately notices them and greets them. We hand them a nice crisp bulletin, one without wrinkles. We personally pour them some coffee, you know, being careful with covid we hand them a donut, one of our best donuts, and we encourage them to sit in the best place that we have. And I don't know where that would be. Maybe right in front of my pulpit would be the best seat, which nowhere, no one is. So that can't be the best seat. But whatever best seat it is, we find them the best seat there is. We make sure their coffee is nice and hot. They have the best donut. They have a bulletin. We, we greet them very kindly. We say something like this. Let us know if you need anything at all. We're here to serve you. Okay? And then a poor person comes in. We look at the door and we notice this person. They don't have any nice clothing on. In fact, they look a little dirty and dingy. Maybe they're not wearing a mask. We don't notice they drove up in a car at all. Maybe they walked here. Maybe they took their bike. So we're not impressed. This person who is greeting this person at the door says, we say hi to them. You know, we're not going to be that rude. We say hi to them, but we don't want to get too close just in case. We don't really offer them a coffee or a donut we tell the poor person to sort of stand wherever they can find room, wherever they can find a place, suggesting we might not have enough chairs today because sometimes we fill up. And perhaps they should find a seat by the door or on the floor somewhere, wherever they can find a chair. The poor person asks us if they can have some coffee, and we say something like, well, let me see if we have any left, because sometimes we run out pretty quickly. And we leave to get the coffee, and we never come back to them. 
Now, this scenario, to my knowledge, has never taken place in our church, and I'm glad to say that. But this is kind of what James is putting forward is what's taking place. Okay, yes, I added a little to modernize it so we understand what could happen today. But it's pretty easy to tell what's going on here, is it not? This is preferred treatment. This is exactly what partiality looks like versus someone who has much and someone who has very little. Okay? And it's doubtful that we're shocked by this little scenario because this kind of thing happens all the time in our society. In fact, we may have become numb to it by now. Isn't this just how the way, isn't this the way that how the world works? Isn't that just the way the world works? The rich get better treatment than the poor? Isn't that just the way of the world? Well, perhaps that's true, but we're not dealing with the world here today, are we? We're dealing with the church and people who say they follow Jesus Christ, people who say they follow the King of glory. And the question we want to get on the same page with today is why do some people, some people, like the rich, get preferred treatment while the poor get our rudeness and our neglect? I think it would be very obtuse of me at this point to ignore what's happening in our world these days. To say we're not dealing with this issue right now on a grand scale would just be plain ignorant. Now, perhaps it's not specifically rich versus poor, but we are dealing with preferred treatment in our nation right now towards those who we like and understand versus those who are a little different than us. We even call them minorities and other derogatory words to make them seem less than. But I'm not going to judge anyone's specific actions today because I don't have the right to do that. I don't have the right to do that. I want us to answer this question more broadly together, okay? Why do some people get our good treatment and others do not? That's the question we want to answer today. Why do some get our good treatment and others do not? What is at the core of our hearts that allows us to give kindness and good treatment to some, and rudeness and neglect to others. What's at the core of our heart? Haven't we all done this on some scale to some degree? If you were honest, you would say, yes, to some degree I have done this before. I know I have. And isn't it because we have been conditioned to do so? In this hypothetical situation James gives us, a rich person walks into our assembly and we kindly greet them and treat them well. Why? Why? Well, we might say it's because that's what visitors deserve, right? That's our tagline as Wyoming Valley Church is a place where all are welcome. Isn't that our tagline? Wyoming Valley Church, there it is. It's right on our website, a place where all are welcome. Why do we treat the rich so nicely? Because that's what visitors deserve, right? That's what they deserve. But if that's true, why wouldn't the poor person get the same treatment when they walked in? It doesn't say a place where all rich people are welcome. It says a place where all are welcome. And I don't think we generally struggle with this in our gatherings specifically, okay? Not that I have seen. I have not seen anyone give preferred treatment to the rich and neglect to the poor. And I want to thank you for that. I haven't seen that in my two years of being your pastor. But I also think it's safe to assume that it's because we make judgments about people by the way they look. We see the rich and we assume they're, they're hardworking, Right? They're disciplined. They're just. Probably good stewards of their money. Right? They have to be. I mean, look how well they're doing. Look, look at the clothes and the car that they drive. We look at the poor and we assume they're lazy. They're undisciplined. They're bad stewards of their money. Perhaps they're prone to thievery. We would never think such a thing, would we? 
If we were truly honest, though, we make other judgments as well. After all, the rich might be able to help us. The rich might be able to make our lives and our church better, right? I mean, they have assets. The rich have assets. I mean, if the rich became a member of Wyoming Valley Church, they might give a sizable offering. We might be able to get that new building we all want or at least get some new tables and chairs, right? I mean, think about what the wealthy could do for us. But the poor? The poor? The rich have status. Perhaps we will gain some status by being associated with them. The rich are powerful. They might be able to do things for us that others cannot. And you see what James is saying kind of without saying it? We love others with bias and favoritism. In a nutshell, I think this is what he's saying. We love those who can love us in return. Jesus brought this up in Luke 6, verses 32 to 36. Listen to what Jesus said in regards to this. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind and ungrateful. Excuse me, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. And then he says this, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And this is the basis for James' lesson today. We often love so as to receive something in return. I'm going to say that again. We often love so as to receive something in return. Sometimes love is about us. It's about us. It's not about others. It's about what we can get. See, the poor, they don't have a lot of assets. They don't have status. They don't have power. The poor might not be able to do anything for us in return. But since when is love about getting anything in return? When is true love about getting anything back in return? The very definition of God's love that we find in the Bible is a term called sacrifice. Is it not? We know that because the most famous verse ever in the Bible is John 3.16 that we looked at this past Wednesday that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus went to the cross. God gave up his son so we could have life. Do you notice that? He lost a son. Jesus lost his life so we could get eternal life. Sacrifice. He gave up so we could gain. That's what love, best love, is. Listen to what it says in Romans 5, 6 to 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who is Christ loving? Christ is loving those who can't love him in return. We are completely worthless before Christ saves us. We have nothing to offer him. But he saves us anyways, at the cost of his own life. And guys, that's the basis for love. Versus what James is bringing up here in James chapter 2. See, the Lord of all creation, he didn't hold a banquet for the wealthy and the good natured, did he? He did not hold a banquet for the wealthy and good natured. He died on the cross for sinners. Wicked people who hated God. And he is our model. Jesus is our model. 
as his ambassador. Here in James, the rich are getting treated with kindness and generosity, and the poor are being treated like less than. And so in an effort to balance us like a car that's out of alignment, pulling to the left while we drive, James says to us, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you? Aren't the rich the ones who drag you into court for any reason whatsoever? Aren't the rich the ones who blaspheme the audible name by which you were called? If all things are equal and you're giving people what they deserve to get, aren't the rich the ones that deserve less than your best? Now, we need to be careful here, okay? James is not saying this to get us to treat the rich poorly, okay? I'm going to make that very clear. He's not saying this so we treat the rich poorly. He's saying to us, our motives aren't pure. Our motives are not pure. If this is about fairness, then generally speaking, the poor deserve better than the rich because the rich treat us rudely. Generally speaking, the reason most of us enjoy treating the rich better, the educated better, the people with status better, is because we think our association with them will cause people to treat us better. Isn't that true to some degree? And James says our motives are self-seeking. That's a self-seeking motive. We don't care about the rich like our actions seem to say. What we care about is what the rich can do for us. Because if we cared about the rich as people made in God's image and our motives were pure, we would give the same kindness, the same love to the poor as well. Because they're also made in God's image. Whether black, white, brown, they would all get our same love. If it was about love. And James is bringing it up, it might not be. And the fact that we struggle loving the poor means we're only in this for ourselves or put any category of people there. The reason that we struggle loving the people group that you struggle loving means we're in this for ourselves. That ouch, that hurts, right? That hurts to hear. And James is kind of digging up selfishness and greed in us today, myself included. Not only that, but James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Didn't God choose the poor? primarily for his kingdom. James is saying, if you really want to follow the Lord's model, the Lord Jesus model, loving the poor is where we should make camp because that's what our Lord Jesus did. He primarily gave himself away to those who couldn't love him back. Again, he's not telling us to reject the rich. I don't want you to walk out here saying, oh, I should be cruel to the rich. No, that's not what he's saying. Don't be cruel to those who have status or have power. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that our minds are warped to think like the world, to act like the world. The rich is what the world glorifies, right? The rich glorify, excuse me, the world glorifies the rich. But the poor is what God uses to accomplish his work. And why is that? If you were here at our doctrinal class two weeks ago, you realized what that is. It's because they will glorify God. The rich will glorify themselves and the poor, generally speaking, will give glory to God. And it's all about God's glory. That's why Jesus loved the weak and the poor and the less than, is because those people would give glory to him. I'm about to say my most controversial statement of the entire sermon, but I think it's necessary in accordance to what we're dealing with these days, okay? Along with treating the poor poorly. Because that does happen. Racism, too, is real, is it not? It's real. I know it's real. You know how I know it's real? Because I've seen it in my heart before. That's how I know it's real. 
I'm not going to judge anyone or make any claims about our church, our county, or even the recent events I've seen taking place on the news, okay? And I have no idea if those events that we see in the media were motivated by racist attitudes. I can't see their hearts. I can't. And neither can you. But to say that racism isn't a problem in our world, it's silly. It is. Of course it is. We have a huge problem with preferred treatment, with biasness, favoritism, where we're loving only some people. Just like treating the rich better than the poor is real, racism too is real. And honestly, they're for the exact same reasons, oftentimes. As I said, I'm not going to make a statement regarding the recent events that have taken place in our country. And I think the Bible makes it clear it's wrong to make judgments without the facts. I don't have the facts. All I can make is judgments, and I don't think that's right, based on little video clips or testimonials. I didn't see the entire story. I don't know if they were motivated by racist actions or not. So I'm not going to be doing that. But racism is real, and we all know it exists. And the stereotype that exists, at least from my perspective, is that racist undertone that minorities are the ones that cause the most trouble in the world. Therefore, they bring this type of harsh treatment upon themselves, right? If they weren't so bad, they wouldn't be treated so harshly. At least that's an undertone that's in our culture. And I am using a broad stroke here today on purpose, okay? I am not thinking of anyone specifically. But isn't that how some people think? That perhaps these people are bringing this upon themselves. Is it possible to be true? Of course it's possible to be true. But I think making that kind of judgment is a cruelly unfair line of thinking. Cruelly unfair. I don't know these people. I don't know their situations and neither do you. I can't say one way or the other if they're causing these issues themselves or if they're victims of racism. And you know why I can't say that? Because I don't know. I don't know. I don't know them. I wasn't there. I don't know their situation. I can't make those judgments, and neither can you. But isn't it at least possible that their economic status, being poorer, has some of us making all sorts of conclusions about their lives, such as they're deadbeats, they're lazy, they're prone to thievery, instead of considering how we can love them and what they might need from us. Several weeks ago, we spoke about following the master, and we studied what would Jesus do. We can and should apply that to our current situation and age. This is a hypothetical situation question, but I want you to humor me. Do you think Jesus would be on Facebook making judgments about people based on a viral video clip or media report? Or do you think he'd be on the streets with kindness, with love, and with the gospel to help those who are in need? James says to us, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. If that's really what guides you, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If you're showing partiality, James says, you're against God. That's not what your God does. That's not what the Lord Jesus does. If you're showing partiality or favoritism or biasness, you're against God in your lifestyle. Getting back to the point, James is speaking about love. Love. Not about which people group is better. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about love. He's making a point that we still struggle seeing all people as vessels of our love. 
James' point is that we should love one another. Love has always been the point, and love will always be the point, even in the kingdom of heaven, especially in the kingdom of heaven. It will still be about love. Love is our eternal job descriptions as Christ's followers. Guys, if we don't love others, Scripture makes this very clear, we're not Christians. If we don't love others as a practice and theme of our lives, we're not who we think we are. We're not followers of Jesus. You can't be if you don't love. We're so passionate about so many things today, but we've lost sight of the most important thing, love. Without love, every purpose that we are passionate about is wrong. Without love, every one of our doctrines and thinkings about God is wrong. Without love, every well-intentioned action we believe we have is wrong. James says that we really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, which is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We're doing well. If love is what guides you, sacrifice, and that's what guides you in all circumstances, we're doing very well. And I believe he terms it the royal law because it's the same law that guided our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same law that guided Jesus while he was on the earth. Jesus laid this model before us in his actions and with his teachings. When we love, we're acting like royalty. We're acting like the king of kings. Can anything be more important than to act like our Lord Jesus Christ? Can anything? Than to represent to this world what he looks like, what he is like, how he acts, how he thinks. That's what my job is as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Let me ask it this way. Would you rather find out in the last day that you were right in all your judgments, judgments about people? Would you rather find out in the last day that you were correct in every single judgment you made about people? Or would you rather find out that you walked in love as Jesus did? With mercy and with compassion. See, we can miss some, th- some things in Scripture and still be spiritually healthy. I don't recommend it to miss anything in Scripture. But there's a few things we can miss in this book and still be spiritually healthy. But if we miss out on love, guys, we've missed everything. Everything has been missed. And we cannot possibly be on our way to heaven because Jesus has laid the pattern of love before us so many times in so many ways. Any way we slice it, if we don't love, we're not following Jesus to heaven. Love is the direction to heaven because love is what Jesus did and what Jesus taught us. If we love, we follow Jesus, and if we don't, we follow the devil. It's that simple. James says that if we show partiality towards one group over another, then we're sinning and we're breaking the royal law of God. I think James' goal is to either either inspire us to act like Jesus or to convict us of acting contrary to Jesus. And maybe we're getting a little bit of both today. Maybe we're getting inspiration, and maybe we're getting a little bit of conviction, and that's a good thing. Either way... We must get on board with loving others, all others, before it's too late. Because no practicing sinner, including anyone who is abstaining from showing love to people, is ready for Judgment Day. No practicing sinner is ready for Judgment Day. No one who's neglecting and abstaining from showing love is ready to stand before God on Judgment Day. Without love, Judgment Day is going to be terrifying for us. 
In fact, James says, if we break the law in just one area, such as loving with a bias, we're breaking the entire law of God. Consider that. Consider that statement. If you're breaking the law of God in one area, one single thing that you're neglecting to do, and this is a big one, neglecting to show love to your neighbor, he says, you're breaking the entire law. He wants us to know this is no small deal. In the eyes of God, the only one that matters to neglect to show love is the same as being a practicing adulterer or a murderer or an idol worshiper. It's the same in God's eyes. God will not stand for this, and he will condemn all those who continue in it. Guys, it's serious. This is serious. I didn't know how weighty and serious this passage was before I got there. I was kind of looking ahead to faith without works is dead. That's the classic one. We're building up to that. And I stopped and said, wow, man, this is serious. I need to hear this today. And I want you to look at your life for a moment with true honesty. Are you being guided by love towards all people? All people? Whether they think like you or treat you well or vote the same as you or have the same values as you or can do anything at all to help you or not. Is love your agenda each and every day? James puts a bow on this lesson using one sobering and weighty truth. He says this at the end. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you want God to be merciful to you in spite of your flaws? In spite of your shortcomings? In spite of what you don't have? Without love and mercy towards our fellow man, we're doomed. Without love and mercy, there is no way we follow Jesus Christ. We must not allow this to continue. Okay, This world does not need any more judgmentalism or cruelty or neglect. This world needs more love, compassion, and mercy. How early is it too early? How early is too early for a Christmas movie? Christmas Carol? What's, what's the earliest we can get away with that? Christmas. <laughs> Scrooge, right there, Scrooge. I mean, can we get away with it in November, maybe? Late November? What about right now? Is it too early right now? It's okay? All right. I'm going to quote something from my favorite movie of all time, which is A Christmas Carol, and I know it's really early for a Christmas movie, and I don't believe this is a biblically-based movie, okay? I've said that before. I need to say that again. But I'm going to read you a quote that I think is quite interesting from the movie The Christmas Carol. To set up the scene, uh, and this is read right from the book, the Charles Dickens book, but in this scene, Scrooge is now with the ghost of Christmas present, okay? You remember there's three spirits, past, present, and yet to come. He's now with the Christmas, uh, the ghost of Christmas present, and Christmas present is showing him a glimpse, a vision of the Cratchit family. The Cratchit family is, is his clerk. Bob Cratchit is his clerk, and he's seen his family on Christmas Day. Scrooge getting to see them, they can't see him, and that's basically what's taking place. And I just want you to read a little bit of what's going on here. It says, as last the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. The compound and the jug being tasted and considered perfect. Apples and oranges were put upon the table and a shovel full of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew around the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a circle. 
And at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. Those held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done. And Bob served it out with beaming looks while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed, a Merry Christmas to us all, my dears, God bless us, which the family re-echoed. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit. Say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he are to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, said the ghost, if man you be in the heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus really is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live and what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Isn't that powerful? This is the turning point for Scrooge because he realized that his judgments about the poor were wrong. Were wrong. Now, I've spoken on a sermon from James 2, okay, and I've given you the text. Now I want to speak a little bit from the heart, okay, before we close today. People, as your pastor, we need to love one another. We need to love others. Eternity's at stake, okay? Eternity's at stake for us and for them. This world does not need more judgmentalism or cruelty or neglect. We need to love one another. We need to love each other. We need to stop making judgments and accusations about people. We need to treat others like we would want to be treated. Isn't that what the scripture says? Treat others like you would want them to treat you. We don't have the right to judge. I don't have the right to judge. You know why? Because I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge and neither are you. How did Jesus treat us when we were less than? How did he treat us? With judgments and cruelty and neglect or the cross? See, God loved us while we were sinners at the cost of his only begotten son. Jesus loved his neighbor as he would desire his neighbor to love him. If you struggle to love today, if that's a struggle in your heart to say, I don't know if I care about these certain people, this certain type of people. I don't know if I can show them love and compassion. I want to consider today that maybe you don't have Jesus. Maybe you haven't been touched by his grace. Maybe you haven't looked at him on the cross. Maybe you haven't considered what you were when he died for you. And that's where we need to start today. Have you trusted in him? Have you realized what he did for you when you were less than? If you do, if you will look at him and take a long gaze and look at Jesus Christ, you will be motivated, inspired, convicted, and convinced that you should love one another as he has loved you.
to stand before the Lord in his wounds at judgment day without us showing mercy and love would be horrifying. To look at Jesus' wounds in his hands and his feet, the marks of his mercy and compassion towards us, and to say, well, they didn't deserve it, Jesus. I didn't think they deserved it. I didn't think they warranted my love. It, would, it doesn't work, does it? Any way we slice it. We have to remember that the Lord Jesus is coming back soon, too. I don't know if you have a month or two months or six months or a year to get back on track and to get things situated. I don't know. My advice to you today is get moving today. Change your heart by the grace of God today. Let me read you a passage before we close. It's in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. This is, the, this is the Lord Jesus Christ talking. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it also to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me also. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We need to love one another, do we not? No matter the cost, no matter what they look like, no matter how they act, no matter if they're like us or not, no matter if they can treat us well or not, to love is to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. To love is to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And to neglect love is to be contrary to everything Jesus has taught us. Let us love without bias before it's too late because Jesus loved us when we were poor and miserable creatures. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this message. It has touched my soul. It has impacted me and convicted me in a way that I needed because I often ju jump to judgments about people and I don't have that right. Every single person on this earth has been created in your image and has an opportunity to know the God of the universe. And I and everyone here has a responsibility to set before this world what the King has taught us and what the king has done for us. And that is a weighty responsibility. But it's a privilege. And I pray that we would today look at Jesus, look at what he's done for us, and then look at our fellow man and say, that right there 
is exactly who I should love because this is how I love my Lord. And it's a privilege and an honor to love you because of the great love with which you've loved us. We thank you for touching our soul today. Help us leave and continue thinking and praying about this and then looking at our neighbors and saying, I will love you because he loved me. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.